Hello. Hello. Welcome to Off the Book the Podcast. I'm Maddie. I'm Beth. And we talk all things YA, NA, adult books. We have got a very special guest today. A very special guest that we have been really, really excited for and we've spoken about a little bit. So, Emily Collin is on the podcast today. Say hello. Hi, everyone. Um, So, we're going to be asking her some questions today, which is a little bit new, a little bit exciting for Mm -hmm. us. Um, So, really quickly... So we ask, just so you're aware, we ask the same like three questions every single episode. How are you? What are you reading? What, and what are you watching? So I thought we'd just go around and share that. Mm-hmm. Do you want to go first? Sure. Um, so how am I? I'm doing really, really well. Um, the weather is great and that always brings my mood up. Mm-hmm. Um, what am I reading? Um, I'm reading Circe by Madeline Miller. I'm just about to start that. Mm-hmm. Um, and what am I watching? Oh, I started watching Teen Wolf again last night. That's exciting. Really good. Maddie, how about you? Um, I'm doing fantastic. Um, what am I reading? I finished reading Scars last night, which I'm really annoyed at the ending. There was a massive cliffhanger, and I'm reading Cersei, and I am watching Loki. I'm very obsessed with it. Um, but yeah. So Emily, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm doing really, really well. Um, and it's been a little bit of a wacky writing week for me, where I feel like I'm in multiple places at the same time. I got really excited because I found out Sword was accepted to be a part of a um, small book subscription box. And I love book subscription boxes. So it's called Nerdy Book Box. So that made me really happy. That's so exciting. Yeah, it's it's wild to me. I just, I can't wait to help curate the box. I'm really excited. And um, sort of scooped into a couple of number one um, Amazon slots. So that was really exciting for me too. And then I found out it got shortlisted for uh, a sci-fi and um, fantasy prize. So I was very surprised about all of that. It was all good stuff. But um, outside writing world, I've um, been trying to do yoga and go swimming when I would really rather sit at home and eat chocolate and cover myself with a blanket. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that is um, but, So what am I reading? <laughs> yeah, it is a mood. It's my, I think it's my whole mood all the time. Um, yeah, so what am I reading? Um, so I just finished reading um, Angie Thomas's On the Come Up, which I was late to the party with, but I really loved. Yeah, I really want to read that. It's so good. Is it? It's so good. Okay. It's so good. <laughs> oh, she's just amazing. She is, I love yeah. her. Um, she's so good. And I just finished um, Victoria Aviard's Realm Breaker, which, have you guys read that? <laughs> Yes. yes, I love Victoria Aveyard and I love Real Breaker. It was so good. It was so good. Um, and I'm about to read um, The Wolf and the Woodsman by Ava Reed, which I'm really excited about. I just got it. The cover's beautiful. Oh, you should totally check it out. It's really great. What's it called? It's called The Wolf and the Woodsman. And the author is Ava, A-V-A Reed, R-E-I-D. And it looks so good. Oh, yeah. I've seen... The cover looks beautiful. Mm-hmm. Oh, that looks gorgeous. It's definitely added to our list. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. It's like, you know, do you, I don't know if you all do this, but sometimes like books I really want to read, I put them aside as my prize. Like when I do this or when I get this done, I'll get to read this book. So that's my little prize for the week, my weekend prize. Um, yeah, I'm so excited. What am I watching? So speaking of being really late to the party, I'm watching Shift Creek, which like everyone I think watched before me, I didn't watch. Um, I finished Shadow and Bone, 
that was a big thing. Um, and yeah, did, did you see it? Did you see Shadow and Bone? Yeah, mm-hmm. yep. we loved. Yeah. Um, and I loved how they combined two books into one. It was it was really awesome. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm also watching Hannah, which do do y'all know about Hannah? I it's on Amazon, isn't it? Mhm. Mhm. And I had yeah, I'd never heard about it. A friend of mine told me about it, and um, the it turned out that the uh, main character and the other folks their DNA is spliced with wolf DNA, which I had no idea about, but it's kind of intriguing because of my oh. character. So I was like, oh, how did they do this? So yeah, that is, I'm watching Schitt's Creek and Hannah simultaneously, which is a little bit of a colliding of the world, but it's fun. Um, going back really quickly to Shadow and Bone, I messaged you this earlier. I'm simping really hard for Freddie Carter, Carter as Kaz Brecker today. Mm-hmm. Like it's all over my TikTok and I can't, I can't stop thinking about uh, yeah. his him as Kazbrecker is incredible. Yeah, I see, but I, that's the healthy option. I just have a really terrible. I know that the Darkling is a bad man, but I just think Ben Barnes is very attractive, <laughs> and I pay attention to the plot. But it's Ben Barnes, so <laughs> it's a problem. It's a real problem. I'm with you both. I, I feel. I feel both. Okay, so we thought we would start with some non-spoiler-related questions. So, for oh, people... actually, sorry, before we start that, before we get into the interview, I'd say if anyone has not read That's the book, or if oh, sorry, I've interrupted <laughs> you then. Well, um, if anyone's not read the book or not listened to our last episode where we reviewed the book, go read it. Go listen to the episode and then what come back. It, oh, the Sword <laughs> of the Seven Sins by <laughs> Emily Collin. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so. Non-spoilery questions. So for those who either A, haven't read the book, or B, because I know there's some pe- some weird people out there that aren't fussed about spoilers and they just listen to episodes of like our podcast and just listen about the book. And I'm like, we spoil everything. So can mm-hmm. you just go and read the book? It'll make me feel a whole lot better. So if they haven't read the book or they haven't listened to the episode, could you give like a brief synopsis about what Sword of the Seven Sins is? Absolutely. So it's about this world, which is a futuristic, uh, post-apocalyptic version out of our world. And in it, um, there are these little societies, mini cities called commonwealths, and people in them live and die by the rules of the seven deadly sins. You know, the big ones, lust, greed, pride, sloth, you get the idea. And um, if you are found in violation of these sins, to be committing these sins, you get punished really terribly. And um, one of the worst sins to commit is lust and love is forbidden. Um, And so of course my two main characters fall in love because what bigger conflict could there be than to (laughs) fall in love in a place where love is forbidden and lust is punishable by death. Um, and as they begin to fall for each other, they realize that there's more to their world than meets the eye. And so then they really have to decide, do they cling to the world that they know and what's safe and accept what's around them and forsake what they feel in their hearts? Or do they go with their hearts, risk their lives and leave everything they know behind? That's the story of the first book. It's a trilogy. So there's, yeah, there's three main books and then there's a there's a short story collection which is out now mm-hmm. and then there's a free prequel which is out now too so there's 
but it, it'll it'll ultimately be a trilogy but that's kind of the summary of the first book that's sword fantastic I was saying I said in the episode like I haven't been that excited like that that first chapter of reading these like futuristic dystopian type worlds this was like the first time since I was about 13 where I was like really excited and really on edge reading this book and it's fantastic Mm. so if you haven't read it go and read it and it's opening line I absolutely love you you know how to open a chapter <laughs> yeah. like because it's that one then followed by chapter just the line the opening lines just catch you and like pull you in it was so good we do this thing where we uh will like read the book at the same time but we'll just message quotes to each other that we love and I literally I was just getting quote after quote from Bethany like just from the first chapter and I was like okay I need to read this I was like you need to hurry up and read it so I can read it <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, that first line is... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's so good. Um, so our next question is, yeah. what was the main inspiration for the Commonwealth and their rules? Um. Well, so, you know, uh, it was really two different things. So I think two concepts really collided in my brain. And when I talk to other writers, too, I think that's sometimes where ideas come from, these two completely disparate things that just come together and there's your idea and so my first thing was this idea of what would it be like to live in a place where people had to live and die by the rules of the seven deadly sins like they're the seven deadly sins for a reason because in our weakest moments those are the tendencies that we go towards those are the pits and the traps that we fall into but they're things we all do all of us do it they're at the center of what makes us human beings, right? Like, who's not lazy sometimes? Who's not proud sometimes? You know, um, all of us, right? And so I thought, what would it be like if you lived in a place where these very basic human traits that are just part of who we all are were completely forbidden, you know? And so these, these things that we all just tend towards just were things not only to be ashamed of, but that you could die for committing. So that was my first thought. And I I feel like I'm drawn to extremes in in my writing a lot. I love to see what happens if you just dump my characters into the most extreme situation possible. That was the first thought. And then I started to think about, okay, so if that was the world, why would you have a world like that? Like what would be the surrounding setting? And when I first started writing this, it was in the run-up like I think it was like 2015 maybe it was the run-up to our U.S. election and I was very alarmed by what I saw in the run-up to our U.S. election and um, a lot of people didn't seem to think that the person who ultimately became our president I want to say his word his name um, could win um, but I thought he would win and it was really scary to me thinking that he would win because he did not espouse my personal belief system in any way and so I started to think about what could our world look like in the future if this person won? What if this person was really just a front for white supremacist groups? Um, what if this person was really a puppet for these political schemes and was just power hungry and didn't have the best interest of the country at heart and all of these different things? And I kind of took it to the extreme in my head where I thought, and what if climate change then went unchecked? And what if these groups that were unsupported before kind of came out of the woodwork, which important of fact, unfortunately, <laughs> kind of went off into us. Um, and I, I started to really envision this. And I thought, what if at that point the, there was a revolution and these small 
communities formed in the southern United States, which is where a lot of the weapons caches are. Um, and they were controlled using religion, because of course there's a biblical basis for the seven deadly sins. And so that kind of that's kind of where that came from. And there's a whole fantasy element, you know, to this series as well, with the four houses and all of that, that kind of makes it different than the typical dystopian apocalyptic fair. But that was that beginning thought of the Commonwealth was like the blend of kind of like creating art to cope with the run-up to the election and this idea of what would happen if the seven deadly sins were punishable by death. I love it. I love that. Do you know, I've just realized, I feel like this is going off topic, but I've just realized, so I was a dance, I mean, you call them dance majors in the US, but my degree is in dance and my dissertation piece was based around um, he who shall not be named. And I've just realized <laughs> that um, I ended up taking like, almost dystopian futuristic type look on, on it like all of my dancers were based in neutral tones everyone was like wiped of personality they were just yes. people and I've just realized I've just put that like two into not related but <laughs> I thought it was interesting <laughs> no I think it's totally related because I, I feel like it's the same thing right whether you're, it's dance or visual art or writing this is what creative people do is try to make sense out of or make art out of the things that are either lighting us up inside with happiness or lighting us up inside with fury and fear, you know? And so mm -hmm. it has to come out some way. And I, I think creativity, like the dance pieces that you're talking about or writing or whatever, it gives us a different way to put that information forth. And I think, so in my, in my non-writing life, in my other life, for many years, I worked at an arts nonprofit for youth in need, and it was multidisciplinary. And one thing that we mm -hmm. found was we had a lot of youth that we were serving who might've been very angry, very sad, very lonely. And if you tried to talk to them about those things directly, they just shut down. But if you used art, all of a sudden, everything they were feeling, they would express by drumming or dancing or singing or writing or painting. And so I think sometimes you can get also people in the world to look at issues differently. People who would just shut down and be on different sides of political issues if you just talk to them. But if you create mm -hmm. art, everyone can sit down and read it together and maybe you're willing to look at it differently. Who knows? Maybe you change people's opinions with your dance. You know, so that's that's something else I think that I hope for too is that when people create and you turn these negative emotions or feelings into something creative, you can sometimes change people's minds before they know what their minds are being changed about. Yeah, for sure. Can I ask a question? I realise it's not on the list, but I was reading through um, like the promo packet that Jennifer sent us and mm -hmm. it was talking about how you were willing to discuss about the line between creativity and anxiety. Mm -hmm. So my like I'm a dance teacher just for reference and my biggest thing, I wrote essays on it and it was about the line between creativity and boredom within the dance class. So if a young person, hypothetically, if a young person was really wanting to create something but they were like really anxious about that process because I know that can be a daunting process for young people and children to go through what would your advice be for them I think that a lot of anxiety in creation comes from exterior pressure so a lot of the time when you're creating it's because you've seen something else in the world another dancer another choreographer another writer and you think I was inspired because I saw this piece or because I read this piece. I, I want to create just the way they did. And then you think in your own mind, but 
it could never be that good. It could never be that amazing. Why should I even try? Why should I even start? I'm so far away from that. Or you think of the idea of somebody else seeing it, of that pre-existing audience looking at you and you have that sense of perfectionism that's coming from the outside. And so for me, I really feel just having spent so much time working with young people, whether it was in dance or in writing or in art, and just having that opportunity for yourself to be free and to experience the space in which you create as an opportunity to let your true self come forward and to know that if you don't want to, nobody else ever has to see that. That's your choice. So you can choose to create just for yourself and for your soul and for what is inside you and put it out there just to have that cathartic experience. And you never, if you're worried about it, you never need to show it to somebody else. You can wait until that point when you are truly ready. Um, And then also, but to know this, that anxiety when creating, it doesn't mean that something is wrong with your piece of creation. It doesn't mean that just because you're feeling like that sense inside, we know that anxiety lies and depression lies. These are things that lie to us about who we are in that oftentimes we can't see ourselves clearly when we feel depression or when we feel anxiety. So just to know that no matter who you are, whether you're the most accomplished person in your field or whether you're just starting out, we all feel that anxiety. And that anxiety is that liminal space between what we want to achieve and what we hope we won't be able to. And in that space is where true creativity happens. So to just know that you're not alone and to know that no matter who you are, you will still feel that and you will always feel that, but that is okay because that means that you're an artist. It's part of being an artist. That's what it's okay. Oh, thank goodness. you. That's yeah, inspiring. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Girl, that's got me. <laughs> anyway, let's... <laughs> back to the book I don't know does that help no it really does um yeah it's a line that I always find I know that young people feel pressured into creating and I find a lot of times that like stunts the creative process because they don't want they just don't end up wanting to do it but I feel like no matter what art form whether it's writing or dancing or acting or anything I feel like that is something that really needs to be addressed with how young people a talk in general just um with their entire education but that's mm. going off on a run <laughs> well I will say this one thing because you've hit on my other passion so let me just say this one thing um if I can go for it is that I think that in many many school systems there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer and um there's stuff you're supposed to memorize and there's rote education and there's stuff you're supposed to spew forth and you're right or you're wrong. And I think that that is hard to unlearn when you come to a place where you're creating and it can be anxiety producing before it's freeing, right? There's a step of anxiety in there where you are still pulling from your public education system and you think, well, wait, what do you mean I could just do whatever? You would think it would be like, but no, you're free, create. But it just in the same way as when people have been imprisoned and they get out and then it's very hard to step out of that space of not having someone tell them what to do in every moment of the day. It's very hard in a way, even if you've been craving it, to get into a space where you're like, well, wait a minute. It's amazing and freeing to be able to create whatever I want, but it's also 
frightening to not have there be a right answer and a wrong answer. And once you get as a young person, I think beyond that anxiety and fear of it being quote unquote black and white, right or wrong, and realize that it's in that gray area that creativity thrives and that artists are the ones who find the answers and that art and science aren't mutually exclusive, but they're braided together, that it's all a form of creativity. I think that's when some of the fear starts to dissipate a little bit, but it's really hard. It's hard to get beyond that space where you're told that there's right and there's wrong. Um, and But once you do, and once you realize that even if you're a kid who doesn't do well in school, you can shine on the stage, shine you know, with a piece of pottery in your hands, shine in all these kinds of ways. I think so often kids who can't sit still in school, they're tactile learners, right? So you put clay in their hands and all of a sudden they're not just sitting and expecting to have this back and forth exchange, they're using their hands and moving around, using their body and dancing, maybe they're kinesthetic learners to create these beautiful things. And so that's why I think, I mean, just now you got me on my other kick, but that's why I think that the arts are so, so important for young people, especially all young people, but especially those young people who might not fit in, in a traditional situation. And our little tagline where I used to work, we used to say, um, art saves lives. And I, I really do believe it's true. So. I'll shut up now, but that's my other, you got me going. Sorry about that. You don't. <laughs> you are so quickly becoming one of my favorite people. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, right back at you. Like my teacher brain is like wearing. You, you need to use all this in your job interview. I've got week. an interview on Tuesday and I'm like, just like absorbing it. <laughs> um, should we circle back? As we interesting back. as this is, should we circle back? We should circle book? back to the questions. Um, so Eva um, is our main character. She's a fantastically kind of headstrong and independent female protagonist, which we love. Um, where did you draw inspiration for her? Well, I think Eva, to me, part of her is being a foil to, to Ari, right? Or you want to know, is he Ari or is he Ari? Yeah. He's Ari. Okay. Um, but yeah, he's, he's Ari and she's Eva, right? Um, and, and it is, it's the executor. It is the executor. There you go. It's not the executioner, although sometimes I feel like he is the executioner. <laughs> um, but he could be. Um, yeah, so like Ari, he's someone who, he leads with his heart, right? He doesn't want to lead with his heart, but he does. And very early, you hear him talk about how very early on he learned that this is something that's not acceptable and he got in trouble for it. And um, if you if you ever, if you read the prequel novella, which is called Sacrifice of the Seven Sins, which is totally and completely free, um, it's ebook only, but if you read it, you get some real insight into who Ari is and who he was before the events of Sword of the Seven Sins. And he is a person who is a little impulsive, you might have noticed, and he, he thinks first and acts later. And I needed the other, the female character to be completely different than that. They can't both be that way, right? And so mm -hmm. she is someone who, she's very smart, she's very strategic, she's very canny, she's very wary and suspicious, and she really thinks things through. So she's a person who leads with her head. It doesn't mean she doesn't have like deep abiding emotional feelings. She does, but like Ari's kind of missing a filter <laughs> unless he's in a situation where he really needs it. If he, but if he's really emotionally moved, bye-bye with the filter. <laughs> Whereas Eva, she's measured. She thinks everything through and she's usually not going to let her heart run away with her head. And you'll see that 
um, when you read Siege, I know it's a best one of you has has Siege, right? One of you has read it. Yeah, I have it. Yeah. Okay. So um, you'll see a little bit more in Siege, which it's not out yet for the world. It comes out August 3rd. But in there, you will see a little bit more of that dichotomy between them emphasized. Um, so I needed her to be really strong because I knew she was going to come up against all of these external forces that were so incredibly powerful. And I didn't want her to buckle under them. I didn't want her to let anybody else lead her around. I didn't want her just to go in the direction of her whims. I needed her to have this like really powerful core. Um, and so I created her in that way and to kind of be a, a foil to Mr. Impulsivity over there. Sorry. <laughs> I love that about him though mm-hmm. honestly I was like this no spoiler free we'll talk about it later <laughs> I was gonna say something spoiler free section um so next question we've got is what comes to you first is it the plot or is it the characters I know reading I'm more drawn to the characters like it, like it doesn't matter what book it is if I like the characters I'll read the book so when you're writing does the plot come first or does the characters um, so for me, it also is the characters, for sure. Um, and that is something that the plot is there. But so often I will, I'll, like a line will come to me. Like in this case, the very first line um, of sword that you remarked on, that was the first line that came to me. And it came to me in Eva's voice. And I was like, oh, wait, she was 10 years old. The first time she condemned a man to death. Who is this person? who would condemn someone to death when she was 10 years old? And I knew right away when I had that line in my head that it wasn't because she was this like bloodthirsty sociopath. You know, it was something had happened and she didn't want to be condemning this man to death, but she had no choice. And she was in the society where outside forces were acting on her. And so right away that kind of went to this idea that I wanted her to fall madly in love in this place where you can't fall in love and so it all it came from that and then I realized okay well I need to build a larger plot around this you know I need to create something larger and so of course I did but the whole time I did this the one thing that never varied was who Ari and Eva were and their relationship to each other that was the core and the nexus of the book and it really is the core and the nexus of the series um and so the plot was there but you know, and it was built around it, but they really are the beating heart of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, how long does it typically like take you to write a book? Specifically this one. <laughs> yeah, so it really depends on the book. So specifically for this one, the actual writing of it really didn't take me that long. I think it maybe took me six months or so, but then this book went through a bunch of revisions. Um, it at first, um, it had, I mean, the characters still have kind of Nordic names, a lot of them. And that's because of this white supremacist prejudicial mindset that caused the Commonwealth to be formed. Uh, and the world that exists outside of it is completely different. It's the normal world. It's the real world. It's the world as it should be. Of course, it's a fantasy element. But um I initially had um, that Nordic element far more prevalent in it. And then when I did that, I was like, okay, these, these things are too hard to read. Like you think you can't pronounce like Ari, they were impossible or Ephraim, they were, they were impossible. <laughs> um, and so I was like, okay, this won't do. Even I don't know how to pronounce these in my head as I read them. So um, that, and, and originally um, there wasn't um, the strong fantasy element that was in there. The shape-shifting piece was not in there. and 
just as I began to work on it and revise, I realized that those were things that were important to me to make it different than a lot of the dystopian novels that were on the market and to just really tell the type of story that I want to tell because I love fantasy as well. Uh, and so it went through, I have to think about this now. I started it in, I think, 2015, if I'm not mistaken. And um, I think that maybe 2018 or 2019, we signed the contract, but it had gone through at least two full revisions. Um, so I think for me, a lot of the time, it isn't the writing process, it's the it's the revision process that takes a while. And uh -huh. um, I think for young people starting out who are writing, I think just to know that everybody revises, and it's really normal to revise. And sometimes, you know, it, it takes your book in a completely different direction. But that's okay. So yeah, I mean, it, it, like I said, probably six months of writing and maybe 18 months to two years of, of revision and messing with it until I got it where I really wanted it to go. Speaking of names, um, <laughs> I'm gonna get it wrong. Oh no. Ephraim? Mm -hmm. Is that right? In my head. It's my, right in my head. That's how I say his name. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. I like Googled it. I was like doing all of this research. I was like, I need to know how to say this name because I'm going to get it wrong, but I'm quite proud of myself. <laughs> um, just for time's sake, I think I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. So you just described it a little bit, but what is your writing process like? And specifically, this is the question I want to know. Do you listen to music when you write? And if so, like what's your favorite genre or like type of music to listen to when you write? I always listen to music when I write and I every book that I write has a playlist. And so um, Seven Sins definitely had a playlist for sure. And then um, each of the, um, Ari had his own theme song, Eva had her own theme song. Um, but I, so I, I um, and then the series as a whole um, has its theme song as well, which I, um, I didn't, um, I didn't really realize how closely that theme song related until I looked at what the theme song was about. Um, but yeah, so I always do have um, a playlist for each of my books. I feel like it came from um, when I was first writing and I didn't have a lot of time. And so I needed something that would drop me really fast into the emotional mood of the story. And so I would um, create these playlists. And then even if I only had 20 minutes to write, I could be like, okay, I'm putting this on and now I'm, I'm in this world. So for sure I always have music when I write. I love that. I love that. Can we ask what the theme songs are for Eva and Ari? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so um Ari's theme song is by the Offspring. Um okay. and it's um You're Gonna Go Far Kid. Um they do curse a bunch in that in that song, but I think Ari does too. So I'm gonna I'm gonna write them down so I can listen to them. Um yeah, so um yeah, You're Gonna Go Far Kid by The Offspring is Ari's. And um, Eva's, um, I didn't, it's called Free. I believe it's by Bruce, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but I didn't realize until I watched the video that it is actually about a girl who's escaping a dystopian situation. That's what the whole video is focused on. I did not, I was like, oh, well, that's fitting. A little too on the nose, perhaps. But <laughs> that, um, and then the theme song uh, for both of them together is um, Devils in the Canyon by The Strike. I'm going to go and listen. Mm -hmm. You better send me the songs. <laughs> yeah. Um, on the theme of music, um, away from the podcast, Maddie and I, in one of our friendship groups, we always text and ask each other, what is our song of the day? And it can either be a song that you've listened to a lot 
or it's a song that just kind of you feel like summarizes you and how you're feeling and like what your mood is um what would be your song of the day today well you know i was thinking about this earlier <laughs> i think that was earlier and then i was thinking you know i feel like my song of the day um really is from hamilton and it's my shot because i feel like this like the more that i hear i'm like all right we are lucky enough to be able to have like access to shots and to vaccines then we should if we can take advantage of them i just think about that like uh, you know i'm not throwing away my shot and every time i hear about somebody else who got their vaccine i just feel better and a good friend of mine told me that when she got her shot up in new york city she sang the song really loud oh my god i love that (laughs) yeah so that's my song that's my song it's the song of the season, I think, including the song of the day. Nice. Nice. You say this is random. I So I wrote, I ended up writing these questions. Beth goes to me, this is so random and off topic. It's it's not off topic for me because I do the promo on the Instagrams and I like to choose songs that relate to the books and I'm just curious. <laughs> That's yeah. why. You know, when I'm doing the promo for this, I just want to be prepared. That's all. <laughs> Anyway, right, let's go on to like the spoilery questions. So this is for people, if you haven't read the book, this is your time to disappear, okay? Disappear, goodbye. Goodbye. Um, so our first question, and this was one from me because I was thinking about it. So Samuel, the way he, the way he dies in the book is very dramatic to me. So what was the reason for him having to exit this way like we know as a society they're extremely medically advanced because of what happens with Eva and what they're telling her about herself so why was it such like a dramatic like almost ritualistic Mm. type death so I think you may have noticed that there's a point where Ari talks about how even though other people other than the Bellatorum in the Commonwealth have electricity that they do not the Bellators do Mm -hmm. not have electricity um, because they are they're Spartans in a way they are taught to learn how to survive and thrive under these conditions that are far more primitive than the rest of the society. And that extends to almost everything they do. And um, Killian, who you get to spend some time with in the short story collection, he talks about everybody else as the sheep. That's what he calls them. He calls them the sheep, Um, which isn't very nice. But that's kind of how the Bellators think. They are the ones who are primal and brave and able to endure and able to do all these things. And they're supposed to be able to withstand whatever torture is thrown their way. And so they exist in a way a little bit outside the practices of the rest of the Commonwealth. They've got their woods that they train in that nobody else is supposed to go in. They have this separate building that they live in. They have their own food. They have all these things that they do. They're of the Commonwealth, but yet not of the Commonwealth. And that's deliberate on the part of the executor and the priest, because if someone mixes and mingles amongst you and practices your customs, they're far less scary, right? So they need to be seen as other to be really frightening. Um, And so that the way Samuel dies is part of that. They have their own rituals that are seen as extreme in many ways that are commensurate with the extreme ways in which they live their lives. And Part of it, too, is about it being highly visible, right? So Samuel makes this choice. He can either choose to live out his life in the Bellatorum, becoming, as they put it, increasingly decrepit and unable to perform his duties. Mm -hmm. And they would allow him to do that. But I think there would be a certain amount of shame because they exist for one purpose and one purpose only. And he would grow increasingly unable to fulfill that purpose. 
or he can take what they see as a warrior's death, right? And then they gather everyone to witness it, to see, you know, he took what they see as brave. Of course, it's not really brave. It's kind of insane and cruel and Mm -hmm. awful, um, but so is their society. And, you know, seeing something so blatant, it really tells you about, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? Okay. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, can you clarify some of Eva's kind of like special abilities? So does she shift into each individual animal or is it like a like taking the best <laughs> of each animal to make a hybrid situation? Um, if she touches water, will she automatically turn into a seal? Like these are the pressing questions. Also, can we just clarify what the four animals are? Because I feel uh, like I read through that section so quickly. I just remember it. the seal, and I really hope she just randomly turns into a seal <laughs> at all times. Because if I had that power to just, I would. I actually, I think I would. <laughs> Seals are pretty cute. So she can turn into a panther. She can turn into a um, a wolf. She can, as mentioned, turn into a seal, um, and she turns into a falcon as well. Um, so those are the animals that she can turn into. And so it was a little awkward with the seal um, because I was like, yeah, as you mentioned, like it's not a lot of use if you're in a big battle and everyone's like, you know, a wolf is like really fierce and like, a, you know, a panther can attack with claws and, you know, a falcon can like peck out people's eyes and like the seal is going to be like feeling around with its cute little face and everyone's getting called call victim to its like great big beautiful eyes I don't know um and so in, in the second book like we reflect on this a little bit more but you're right when you talked about in the earlier podcast that it's from Lachlan and the selfie right that story that they tell to each other and the the issue really is that you know these four houses originally existed and these four houses did have these plumistat these animals that were representative of each of them and while some of them were certainly all about defense, others of them were just the shape-shifting animals of that house, right? Um, now, where um, this is mentioned in the short story collection, but I don't think it's like a spoiler to say this. So where the four houses are, so House San Fresco, which is built on the ruins of San Francisco in the United States, which is a place that's um, the west, west coast of California, you know, um, and it's known for its earthquakes. And so that is a city that in this world exists partially underwater okay. um, because it's been so destroyed by these earthquakes. And so the seal, the type of seal she is, is a leopard seal, which is like not as cute and adorable. It's like the little cuddly seals that we normally see. They're the most vicious of the seals. They can take down a shark. Um, and so in that, in San Francisco, because it's this half above ground, half underwater city, um, and because they would expect many attacks from the sea then the leopard seals the skooma were actually quite useful in in terms of defense um but in terms of why the executor chooses to do this to eva like how are you the commonwealth is landlocked like it's in the mountains how you know a seal is not of much use i think for him he realizes that there are there are the he knows there are these four houses each of these animals are representative of each of these four houses First of all, he wants to see what he can do. These are the four types of shapeshifters he knows of. And he knows that if he's able to make her into this weapon, then he can make more of her. And he can take this little army that he'll make anywhere to any of the four houses, and he'll be able to completely weaponize them. So I think this is part of what he's thinking. Not that that particular 
ability will enable him to create something that can defend the Commonwealth. But his goal, and this little power hungry mind, there's several Commonwealths, there's four or five, but there's also the world that exists outside of that where the houses are. You know, and he does not want those houses to exist because even though no one in the Commonwealth knows that they're there, they're a threat, right? And so that's really, he's trying to create the best weapon he can create to be able to be, be, able to be utilized in all the different circumstances. Um, so she can only shift into one animal at a time. She can't be like a hybrid. Like she couldn't be like, I don't know, what could she be? Like a panther with like a steel head poked on top. <laughs> she couldn't do that. Um, yeah, so it, it's just one animal. It's just one animal at a time. Although at this point, you know, when sword ends, it's really no animals because she hasn't been able to do anything except for accidentally shift pieces of her, which is completely terrifying to her. So it did happen. I didn't make that up. <laughs> Beth was like, I didn't read that. I was like, it happened, I swear. <laughs> I think I, I was just really sleep deprived at that point. <laughs> <laughs> um, so going on from that, you might not be able to answer this because spoilers for book two, but like how much control does she have over the shifting? Like, is it just something that happens or is she like going to be able to eventually control when and where that happens? And is the first time it happens, is it going to be like like out of her control because it's the first time she's shifted? And is it a seal? <laughs> so I can't answer some of those questions because it's mm-hmm. too spoilery. But what I can say is this, which I think is fair to say, is that right now it's not under her control at all. And she doesn't understand the first thing about how it might work. But I think we can envision how, you know, we know she's left the Commonwealth at the end of the first book. So now she's out in the world. So now she's kind of potentially a lethal weapon, but maybe even lethal to herself. And she has this piece of information about Ari that Ari does not have about her or about himself, that the executive created him, or not created him, but isolated him as somebody who could anchor her in this way. Um, and, you know, when you, when you asked the um, question or posed the question in um, the earlier episode about, you know, when the executor sees Ari hold Eva's eyes in that very first scene, it, the reason he makes note of that is, as he says in this book, that when, as he says in Stuart, when the babies are born, they test them for this aptitude to see if they are able to be able to serve as this familiar, to serve as this anchor because they're trying to create this weapon and what good is this weapon if there's no one to anchor them, you know? So Ari's two years older, um, but at least they know they have him, right? That's why he's there. Um, And it's kind of a clue too as to why he didn't wind up with the rest of the natural born because we know he is natural born. Why isn't he just with them? Mm -hmm. Well, because he has this ability, they pull him out, right? And so... The executor has been watching Eva all this time. He's watching Ari all this time. And when he sees their eyes meet, because there's limited possibilities of when they can actually be in the same place, right? When he sees their eyes meet, it's kind of confirmation that, all right, this person that I know that you are destined for in some way is actually a good match for you. Okay, there's something to this, you know? So, um, but she does need to learn how to control it and she doesn't have any idea how to control it and 
when, how, why, and if she learns how to control it definitely plays a big part in the second book. Okay. And what happens if she can't as well. I'm going to need you to hurry up and read it so that I can read the book. <laughs> I mean, when I when I finished the first one, I wanted to immediately start the second, but I was like, I need to pace myself. <laughs> I, have to, I, have to, I have to take it slow. Yeah. Um, one thing I thought was really interesting, so some of the books, I've, I say some, like most of the books I feel like where there's, someone who's an anchor for somebody else it always seems like the girl is the anchor for the guy and the guy has all of these more powerful abilities than the girl and she's just there to kind of anchor him and I thought it was really nice it was a nice change for it to be the girl with these abilities and the guy that was anchoring him I like that my feminist brain was like <laughs> yes <laughs> yes I like that too <laughs> Um, and I will say parenthetically um, that if you, I know I keep talking about shadows, but one of the great things about writing the short story collection was that it enabled me to explore these little side stories. And I think you should read book two before you read shadows. Okay. Um, but there's another fabulous female shapeshifter in there um, who has become like, there's two characters in, in shadows that just popped up by accident and they're both really, really important in book two but they pop up in shadows and um, I kind of fell in love with them. And now I kind of want to write a whole book just about them. But um, I think you'll, if you read shadows, you'll see who they are. Um, already, I'm going to say, what it, whoever it is, do it. Because if you're already so like into these characters, it's like, definitely do it. I will give you all my money to read it. Um, <laughs> just just give all my money. Um, so again, now this might be... Um, you know, might not be able to answer depending on spoilers because, you know, obviously we've only read the first book mm -hmm. and might not have read these characters. Um, but if you could wake up and be any of the characters for a day, who would you be and what's the first thing you would do? Okay, this one really made me laugh. So, I mean, you all are only just meeting me right this moment. I am the clumsiest, clumsiest person <laughs> in the world. Like, just to give you a really tiny, embarrassing example of how clumsy I am. So I decided I was going to take a water aerobics class last week and I took it and everybody else was like, 70, 80, 90. So I was like, I got this. I'm going to be great. This is awesome. So we should do this thing at the end. And like at the edge of the pool, we're holding onto the pool and we had to put our legs out in a V. And I'm pretty flexible and I feel pretty good about that. And one of the older ladies, she turned around to me and she said, teasingly, show off. She said, and you're just kidding, nicely, right? And so I wanted to say something funny or self deprecating or something back. But to my great and total horror, I realized there was no way on God's green earth that I could A, think of something funny. B, answer the woman, and C, continue holding on to the wall of the pool. So I fell off the wall of the pool. <laughs> Naturally, oh it's like a great big splash into the water. And this is like the point, like if it was a yoga class, it would be like the namaste moment of the yoga class. It was like that, but whatever you call that, a water aerobics is quiet, is my point. Mm -hmm. And so I come up like spluttering and choking. Everyone's listening. The older lady's like, oh my gosh, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm fine, just choking, don't mind me. So in light of that, I feel like I would really be Eva because she's so not that. She's so not clumsy. And I feel like it would be really lovely for me to just like spend a day training with her. Like that was one of my favorite parts about writing Eva is that all these things that she can do are things that like I obviously cannot do because I can't talk and hold on to the pool wall at the same time. So yeah, I would be Eva and I would just do the most extreme leaping sword fighting things that I could do just to have one day of being like, look, I'm not clumsy. Take that world. I would be the same mm. because 
So again, we've just met each other, but me and Beth, we went knife throwing and axe throwing and I've been since then. And I just, I want to know how to fight. Wait, you've been since then? I went in Gloucester. Without me? Yeah. I think <laughs> you and I are going to have an argument when this is all done. I can't believe you did with it without me. I went me. with Miles, okay? I still feel, I just... Act- you, I was in a different county N- across the country and you wanted me to bring you. Yes. Okay. Although, well, last time when we went, I did accidentally cut my knee and I just didn't tell anyone <laughs> um, with, with, with the knife. So, um, But yeah, I just want to be able to fight. That's... Mm. I'm not violent, but I would like to know how to. I'd like to know how to do it. Mm. Um, I'm thinking of time, and I'm trying to decide what questions. Oh, I saw this question on TikTok, just randomly, and I thought it was really interesting. So, if you woke up as either the day before, like the choosing ceremony, the day before they get their jobs, um, and you knew the outcome of book one, what would you do differently, or if anything, what would you do differently to what Eva did in the book? Well, so to get like the reasoning why I would do something differently, I, you have to again read book two. But I would not make an enemy of Jacob Reese because Eva makes a terrible enemy of Jacob Reese. Mm-hmm. She's better than he is. She scratches up his apprentice's face. She slices his weapons belt in half and it falls to the floor. She's just over him. He's conceited, he's obnoxious, he's aggressive, he's annoying. He makes fun (laughs) of her for being a female Bellator, all these things. And so she makes a total enemy of him. And in consequence, he totally has it in for her. And that plays a role in the second book. So that is what I would do. I would just try to like Mm -hmm. ignore Jacob Reese and not make such an enemy of him. Mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. also trying to be cautious of time i might move on to this question Go this is it. this is one of the most important questions <laughs> what was the most fun parting fun part? <laughs> fun what? what was the most fun part about writing the book and specifically is it the knife to the throat moments because those were our favorite parts to read specifically the bit where he like the knife in the shirt so she can't yeah. move mm-hmm. oh my gosh that was immaculate <laughs> so what was the most fun part um so the most fun part of any book for me that I'm writing is the bantering and the kissing and like that was really no exception for this book as well um I love a good banter I love a good kiss I love some snark and so for me there was like this I tried to be really careful really carefully walk the line to make sure consent was really clear at all points in this book and that was something that I did a little careful dance with because they are they're both living this violent existence. So I never, ever wanted it to make him like that, that night to deceive. I wanted to make it very clear that she had agency, that she could have gotten away from him. I never wanted it to seem in any way like he was doing anything to her really against her will. So I, I did, I was real careful about that. Um, but aside from that, using the fact that they were both such skilled warriors, such skilled fighters, um, and using the whole, like that hand-holding scene where Samuel goes over the cliff, it just, for me, just everything was heightened because everything was so forbidden. So to be able to write their banter and their kissing and their little, like, skirting the edge of everything being forbidden all the time, that was my favorite part because it felt like they were always walking this tightrope and one false step, and they just, pew! 
honestly they were my favorite parts mm. to read yeah this just the and they tension. had such a and it was such like a natural like mm. it didn't feel forced like that banter between them was just so organic and it was so funny mm-hmm. um and like it really it's an enemies to lovers almost kind of story that i was just i was that's what kept me turning all the pages yeah just so slick just going off that it's like the perfect length book yes. like i always find with like fantasy or dystopian or futuristic that the first like half of the book is just explaining what's going on and I, it takes me years to get through them. It feels like years to get through them, but it's like the perfect length. We know exactly what's going on. It's very clear that these are the set rules and there's key examples that help us to understand. So yeah, I just wanted to add that. Like the length of the book is, was perfect for me. Yeah. Um, two more questions? Yes. The last two? I think the last two. Okay, um, so... We spoke about this in the episode. I had this question. Are all of the babies born around the same time? Like, because Eva's birthday is the day of the choosing ceremony, choosing day, isn't it? Is that right? Mm-hmm. It's the day before. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's right around the same time. Um, They're not all, yeah, they're not all born. No, they're, so they have, um, they have surrogates. Right, mm-hmm. that bear the children, and then they have that donation day that I already talked yep. about, you know. Um, but of course, like they can keep all that stuff on ice. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, they try to stagger it because they have a finite amount of resources, right? And so they've got a finite number of you know beds um, in the nursery. They've got a finite number of caretakers and nurses to mind the babies. So um, they they're not all born around the same time. They have a sort of a plan for how they do this because they want to make sure that their resources are being used appropriately, which is basically okay. how they do everything in the common Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sounds. Yep. <laughs> I um, love your Killian question, by the way, that was a really good your, your question about Killian. Oh, should we do that quickly? Mm, okay. I, think, I think we can fit in the Killian question. Okay. So I do not trust Killian deep in my bones. I feel it. I don't trust him. What is going on with him? Can, um, we, trust can him? we trust him? Because at the end of the book, he's acting super mm. sus. I like. <laughs> I really like Killian. I feel like I could trust him. We're I think on we're on we're pages. on different pages. Obviously, no spoilers for book two, but okay. So I think what like I have to say this: you have to read Shadows, which is the short story collection, because okay, the reasoning behind why Killian does there is that he does have an ulterior motive. I wouldn't say that you shouldn't trust him. Okay, but what I should say is he's definitely not telling Ari everything. Oh, yeah, I got and that. he's got he's got yeah he's got a very clear reason for why he's doing what he's doing, and if anyone finds out what that reason is, he would be in really big mm-hmm. trouble even more big trouble than he already is. Mm-hmm. So he, I mean, he does play, he does play a role towards the end of, of book two. I don't think that's a spoiler to say. You see him mm-hmm. in book two briefly, um, but um, you don't necessarily get any more insight into why he, like, because that's, that's what a lot of people have asked me. So why would Killian take this risk? He's a loyal Bellator. He's a second in command. He gets control of the Bellatorum. That's who gets control of the okay. Bellatorum when Ephraim is killed. You ask, that's who it is. So he is it's dead. Him. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, because he is. You know, he's quite dead. He's dead. <laughs> um, and yeah, I don't think it's spoiler to say that he's definitely dead. Um, but now here we have Killian, and he's in charge, hmm. right? And so, 
why would he risk everything like that? So he does have a reason, um, and it's a pretty compelling one. So if you if, if you read Shadows, you'll find out what it is. Okay. I so I say I've actually read a little snippet, so I think I know. I don't think I told you. I think I know the motives you're talking about, and I that's why I trust Killian. So do we? Should I read the second book before I read Shadows? Yes. Or should I read, read the second? Okay. You, this is what I would do if you really want to go on a seven sins kick. Okay. Yeah. Um, you can go ahead and read the novella now, which is a novella, okay. so it's short. That sacrifice is totally free, the ebook. And then I would read book two, which is Siege, and then I would read the short story um, collection. Okay. Um, but now, if you are like a human out in the world who wants to read this stuff, you won't have Siege because it's not out. So you guys have like this special super duper advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't do that. So. If I were um, a human out in the world, I would, it doesn't matter if you read, it doesn't matter if you read the prequel first, Sacrifice, it really doesn't matter. Um, You could read Sword first, and then you could read Sacrifice, you could read Sacrifice first, and then Sword. Sacrifice does take place before the events of Sword, but there's nothing spoilery in there, although it does kind of make you feel a little bit more for Ari and like find out why he is, who and how he is. Um, and then you can go straight from Sword to Shadows, and then Siege comes out on August 3rd. So it's very Seven Sins kind of mm. Exciting. Mm-hmm. Final question. Okay, so I was thinking about this one, because as you could tell from our episode, we were going, I was going down existential crisis route. I was like, if I was in this world, one, would I just blindly believe it? Two... <laughs> I feel like I'm so sub- stubborn that if I didn't believe it, I'd be killed almost immediately. Mm. Um, so if you was in this world, if you was just picked up and dropped off into it, uh, which of the sins do you think you would most likely get caught and punished for? Because I know mine's going to be pride because I am the most competitive person ever. Like competition like rules my entire life. The only reason I do anything is to beat somebody else, which is like really petty. But like that's like how I motivate myself. Mm-hmm. Um so I know that's what mine's gonna be, but what would yours be? Oh it would definitely be pride. I'm a Leo. Leos are known for being very, very prideful. Um I'm sure this would be my problem because I would be like, well you're not gonna tell me what to do. Well I could figure out a better way to do this. Well why should we inefficiently all stand in this line when we could do other things? Well, this is ridiculous. So I'm sure, I'm sure that would be me. I'm sure pride would be, pride would be my downfall. That would be me. Hmm. I'm a Taurus, so I'm like yeah. super stubborn as well. So if I don't want, if someone tells me to do something, I'm not doing it. Like hmm. absolutely not. What would you want I mean, to I, I was gonna say I'm a Capricorn, so part of me wants to say pride because I'm very independent. I like, you know, I just like going for things. I like to win. However. I think it would be lust because I fall in love. <laughs> if if a person looked at me in the street and like even just raised their eyebrow or smiled, I'd be like, well, I'm in love with you. Um, <laughs> Marry I, me. I had, we went out a few weeks ago and it was like my first time out like since kind of the COVID lockdowns and stuff. We went to a bar and this one bartender, I didn't know if he was flirting or not, but I still am slightly in love with him. <laughs> he, like he walked over to the table and filled up my water, no one else's. We made eye contact the whole time. <laughs> And I think it might have been a marriage proposal. I don't know. Um, so I think mine would probably be either pride or lust. Love that. I also would definitely fall in love with Ari. So well, Ari is definitely pride, as you can see. So you'd be perfect yes. together. <laughs> um, I think that's all we've got time yeah. for. 
Well, can I tell you this? I was just taking it to you real quick. Um, so I meant to mention at the beginning, but I totally forgot. Um, so I'm doing this big pre-order giveaway for um, book two, which I'm so excited about. And of course, it's a podcast, so nobody can see, but I'm going to show you. Can you see this? It's a tiny little sort of the seven sins earring. Oh my God, that's so cute. Yeah, and here is like a, oops, of course it's attached to the other one. Here is a tiny little siege earring. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. And then uh, my friend who's a metalsmith made the um, most amazing poetry cuff, which has a line from shadows in it. So there's all kinds of other fun stuff in it. So yeah. If anyone feels compelled to pre-order Siege, um, the website, the book has, or the series has its own little website, which is the7thinseries.com. Don't forget the the, or you're going to wind up in a very weird place, which is not my website at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, Um, And it's also on my, web, my main website, which is emilycollin.com. But there's some fun stuff in there. And I love those little earrings. They are so, so cute. cute. So when does Siege come out? It comes out August 3rd. And so the um, pre-order um, giveaway runs all the way from um, now through August 2nd. And then if you want a, um, there's more stuff in there. I'm trying to remember. There's a really amazing little candle from Frostbeard Studios, which smells like chocolate and coffee and is so wonderful. And there's all kinds of fun stuff in there. There's um, a, a, a Welcome to the Commonwealth retro postcard that's vintage. I saw that. What? I was in love. I saw it on your Instagram and yeah. I was like, this is so cool. <laughs> that's in there. There's a there's a bookmark in there. There's a banned books mug. There's a signed copy of Sword. There's all kinds of fun stuff in there. Um, and if people want a personalized signed copy, I'm doing that through my local um, independent bookstore. And there's a link to that on the giveaway page too. So I just wanted to share that because there's some fun, cool things in there. I mean, amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Listeners, you know what to do. Uh-huh. Um, um, where else can everybody find you? What's your social medias? Oh, sure. So um, you can find me. Um, I'm not on Twitter that much. I'm not a super Twitter human. Um, but it's at Emily A. Collins, C-O-L-I-N. Um, more so on Instagram. So um, Emily underscore Collins. And then um, on Facebook, I believe my, so I've got a, a personal Facebook and an author Facebook. So my author Facebook is Emily A. Collin as well. Um, but Instagram is a really great place to find me. I'm on there doing all things bookish all the time. And then my website um, is emilycollin.com. And one of the fun things on there is that I did book trailers for both of the books, little mini book shows, little mini movies. Um, and they're really fun to do. I especially love the one that I did for Siege. Um, yeah, so if you go on the 710series.com, you can see those trailers too, which is also really fun. Thank you. So exciting. Should I do not? Should I just do mine? Ours? Mine? Ours? <laughs> yeah, your personal? Ours? <laughs> um, yeah, Nate, if you do okay. our social medias. If you like this episode and you want more, please follow us on social medias. TikTok and Instagram is at offthebook underscore the podcast. Twitter is at offthebook underscore pod. We've got a Gmail, offthebookpodcast at gmail.com and a Goodreads, which I'm going to have a conversation with Beth about because I have ideas. Not for a Goodreads, something similar. It's just off the book. Um, if you want to leave us any recommendations, please message us. Instagram, Twitter where else gmail whatever you want to do just do it <laughs> i nearly said snapchat I like, number one we don't have a snapchat number two i don't know how i'd feel about that <laughs> just 
popping up like hello <laughs> just the text of you up got a recommendation literally the only people that have seen our faces on the like the official off the book stuff is yourself and somebody we've got a collaboration coming up with so if somebody just popped up on your snapchat i'd be a bit concerned yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but thank you so much for thank talking so to much. us emily it's been so nice oh my gosh thank you it's such a pleasure it's so great to meet you and i hope your interview goes really well by the way Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I hope it goes well. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to peace out. We're going to peace out. Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>